Good, good morning to you. I want to remind you that next weekend is our Super Bowl. Tell your neighbor right now, next weekend is the Super Bowl. No, I'm sorry. Next weekend is the Super Bowl. That's what I'm talking about. Next weekend we celebrate Easter, which, by the way, is the reason we exist as a church family. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes everything new again. And so, as a church family, we take it very, very seriously about our opportunity and our responsibility to share that with as many people as we possibly can. And by the way, Easter is as good an opportunity as you will ever have to invite someone with the express intention of sharing with them God's extravagant love. I want to ask everybody if you will take out your program that you got when you came in this morning. Everybody take that out just real quick. Everybody take it out, kind of fan yourself a little bit. You know, springtime settling in, getting all the way up into the 80s. Now, if you look on the back section, we have five services here on our West Campus plus our downtown. I want you to look especially, if you've got a pen, you should have a pen because you've got one of those circle Saturday, 5 and 7 o'clock. Circle those dates on your program right there. Just go ahead and circle them. Everybody take your pen and circle 5 and 7 o'clock. Let me tell you why that's important. People who come to 5 and 7 o'clock on Saturday, God likes better. <laughs> those are the people that God likes. Now, if you're a brand new infant Christian and you're just checking things out you can come on Sunday morning but spiritually mature people people who love the Lord with their heart soul and mind they come on Saturday night now some of you right now are panicking like man if I go on Saturday night not on Sunday my mom's kill me we're not going to tell your mom you just come on Saturday night here's why we do this I'm, I'm not even half kidding about this guests and visitors who are just kicking the tires spiritually and wondering what's up with this Jesus thing, they're going to come on Sunday morning on Easter. That's where they're going to come and flock by the thousands. We normally have around 2,000 people on a weekend. Next weekend, we will have over 6,000. So I'm just telling you, I'm just trying to put it in context for you. So we need seats on Sunday morning for our guests that you have already invited to be a part of the Easter celebration. So we're asking all of our regulars, if you say this is your church home, then I'm asking you to please attend one service on Saturday, 5 or 7 o'clock, and then serve at two services on Sunday morning somewhere to make room for our guests. That's a really, really big deal because when they get here, they will encounter the extravagant love of God and Jesus Christ who perfectly communicates that and showed it through the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is a big dadgum deal. And you know it's big because I just used the D word, dadgum. So I'm telling you, please, please, please be inviting people, be praying for people by name, but make sure that we're making room for them next Sunday morning. Deal? Deal. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm excited about this last installment of Walk This Way, the message series that we've been in for the last few weeks. I wonder, you know, it's interesting to me how milestone moments in a family really crystallize the family dynamics that are already in place. 
You know, if you go to a, a wedding or a funeral, you see what's really going on beneath the surface of that family throughout the rest of its existence. I, I, as a pastor, I get to do a lot of different things, but in weddings and funerals, man, you, you see people. How many of you have ever seen some, let's say, interesting family dynamics played out at a wedding? Let me just see a show of hands. I mean, you, if you've ever seen that, it can be kind of funny if it's not your family. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I have seen mothers of the bride refuse to come out and be seated until every single candle was flickering just perfectly down the aisle or the flowers were arranged just so. I've seen grooms, I mean, absolutely freaked out. I've done the premarital counseling with them. Yes, amen, Brother Mac, I'm there with you. And then on the day of the wedding, I don't know if I can do this. Like, my parents got divorced, and I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, come on, you can do this. I mean, you see some amazing dynamics. It's not unlike family dinners. How many of you also know that sometimes family dynamics play out when we sit down around the table and begin to break bread? How many of you have had, like, maybe an argument around the family dinner table in the last couple or three weeks? Or how about at the holidays? Oh, my goodness. You get the in-laws and the outlaws all sitting around the table together. And you, and you just see these things play out. Well, this morning, we're going to see some family dynamics play out as Jesus gathered his disciples for a critical milestone moment. This really had become a family over the last three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as they came to the Lord's Supper table that night, as they celebrated Passover immediately before Jesus' betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection, you see some amazing family dynamics begin to play out. We started in communion in Luke chapter 22, but after communion, Jesus said to his disciples something very interesting. He said, you all have been with me. And you all are my closest followers, but one of you will betray me before the night is through. Now, this is just me talking, okay? I don't have a Bible verse. I would love to have had video in that upper room at the Last Supper. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, can't you just see the disciples kind of start looking around the table? Bartholomew. You've always been a little sketchy. I wondered about you. Or Peter. Peter, you're the one who's always shooting your mouth off. You know, Judas seems like he's got something kind of bugging him lately. And they kind of began to murmur amongst themselves when Jesus made this bold proclamation. But then something really, really fascinating started to happen. The, the disciples began to argue amongst themselves. It was like kids in the backseat of a car on family vacation. Don't make me turn this car around. You know, it was one of those kind of family moments. And I love that the Bible includes this family moment for us. Check it out in Luke chapter 22, verse 25 and 26. Verse 24, I'm sorry. Verse 24 first, a dispute also arose among them. Check this out. As to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So I want you to just get the picture here for a second. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows what this meal represents. He's about to go to the cross and pay the penalty for their sins, for my sin, for your sin. And the disciples 
begin this kind of dispute like, well, you know, I've never really trusted you. Well, yeah, well, you, you kind of done this. Who among us is the greatest? And they begin this incredible argument about status amongst the 12 of them. They had this incredible argument where they start going, I'm better than you. No, 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 you, you've been sketchy all along. I don't know about you. You're kind of a little shifty over there, Judas. And, and this argument arises. How many of you have kids? Can I see a show of hands? Have you ever had a moment with your kids where they kind of start bickering? And as a parent, you have to decide, am I going to intervene? Am I going to leave the room? Or am I going to let them work it out constructively, prayerfully, and hopefully? You know what I'm talking about, that, that kind of moment? Well, Jesus chooses to do something I think absolutely fascinating. Rather than, you know, tearing their heads off and rebuking them and fashioning a whip and a cord like he did in the temple with the money changers, he decides to use this as a teachable moment. And look at what he says, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And so, all of a sudden, you, you can kind of picture the disciples going, huh? Have you ever had a little puppy look at you like that? Huh? That's what the disciples were doing at this point. They're like, wait a minute. The greatest should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. This doesn't even really make sense. And then look at what Jesus said. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? It's kind of rhetorical. If somebody's waiting on you, you're clearly the person of status. But, everybody say but. but. You know what? This is an aside. I, I promise you, I'm going to do, I have a sermon series brewing in my heart and my mind called the big butts of the Bible. Because there are some huge ones. This is one of them. It's one T. I don't know where you're my potty brains. But Jesus says, it's the one at the table who has the status, clearly, but... But I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Four weeks ago, we started a series of messages called Walk This Way, which examines the life of Jesus as he approaches the cross. We, we talked about what Jesus did with our man Nicodemus, I'm sorry, with Zacchaeus. He did it with Nicodemus also, by the way, John chapter 3, check it out. But in Zacchaeus, Jesus said the whole reason he came to earth was to seek and to save those like Zacchaeus who were lost. Bottom line, as a Christ follower, our reason for existing is sharing Christ and his love with as many people as we possibly can. Bottom line. Then we talked about the fact that Jesus has commanded us to care for the least and the last and the lost in compassion as he does. He goes so far as to say is when we do it to the least of these, we've done it to him as well. Last weekend, Pastor Galen Clark brought an incredible message about obedience and what it looks like, what it means to truly 
follow Christ in obedience, one who was obedient even to death and even death on a cross. And this week, here on the night of that first Lord's Supper, that first communion meal, Jesus says, you must be servants in order to really and truly walk this way, in order to genuinely and authentically follow me. Jesus kind of stands the leadership paradigm on its head, and he turns it upside down. Now, I think all of us would admit right up front that serving is difficult. Serving is hard. It kind of flies in the face of every one of our natural instincts and inclinations. Let me see a show of hands from the men in the house. Let me see a show of hands. Guys, if you're a dude, raise your hand. All right? Let's, let's be honest, guys. We're, we're going to kind of tear down the wall. I'm going to break the code here a second and share a secret that we all keep. Serving is hard. Testosterone is great. You know, if you're, if you're throwing up some serious weight or if you're hunting and gathering meat for the winter for the family or whatever, testosterone is awesome. But testosterone does not naturally incline us to serve. How many of us wake up every day going, you know what, I just want to go find somebody to help. Women, don't be laughing now. Keep your elbows to yourselves. But it's difficult. Now, I have it on very good authority that women are not immune from this challenge. We all have a moment where our serve factor is not what it can be. And so real quickly, take out the program that we were dealing with just a minute ago. Inside, there's a notes page. I want to just give you a few reasons why serving is hard. Just a few reasons to keep in mind, to be aware of, and on the radar screen. Number one, serving is hard because of selfishness. Selfishness. We're all naturally inclined to self-preservation, to meeting our own needs, wants, and desires. That's, that's just kind of a fact of life. It's just a part of the deal. And selfishness, this natural desire, if you don't believe in selfishness, I encourage you to volunteer in the nursery at our church. Spend some time with a two-year-old. There's a reason why they call it the terrible twos. Because they're a warm-up for when a child turns three. Three is unbelievable. Three is where you see moms at Chick-fil-A and when you kind of, you kind of flinch in a little bit, kind of get in the car. Seriously. You just they kind of lose it. It's because that little angel, that little bundle of joy that we brought home from the hospital, all of a sudden is manifesting selfishness. The first time your child looks back at you and goes, no. I, I, it fried a circuit in me. I was like, you must be crazy. I, I'm bigger than you. I'm not losing to something that small. Now, we, we laugh at that because we recognize it, but guess what? It's in me right now. I, I have to fight the selfishness drive on a regular basis. Selfishness. Another reason that serving is hard is pride. Pride. We think we're above serving. That, that's, that's kind of beneath me. You know what I look for on our staff? This is interesting. I love to see who stops to pick up trash on our grounds. 
I, I love to see who takes the time to, to pick something up or they think, well, that's, that's for the cleanup crew. That, that's, that's I'm telling you, man, you learn a lot. The good news is our staff picks up trash if they want to stay staff. Our staff <laughs> does that. You, you know who, who does a phenomenal job of this is my wife, Julie. Julie is unbelievable. I, I've, I've seen Julie... It's interesting to me how people treat people who can't do something for them. Like the waiter in a restaurant. You know, more tea. Julie, on the other hand, finds out their name, where they're from, what their parents' relationship is like, <laughs> when they got married, if they're married. Are they in college? What are you studying? Oh, dentistry. Awesome. One time I was walking by the room when Julie was making hotel reservations. This is a true story. Don't ask me if it's true. It's true. I was walking by the room where Julie was making hotel reservations, and this is what I heard. That's awesome. Have y'all set a date yet? <laughs> and I took a step beyond, and I went, what are you doing? And Julie goes, she's engaged. Who finds this out when they're making hotel reservations? My wife. Julie ain't too proud to engage with people. She never considers herself better than anybody else, but that pride can get in the way of our serving. Another one that can get in the way, this is a big one, marginitis. It's been a long time since I made up a word for you. Marginitis. Now, when I talk about margin, I'm speaking specifically about time margin. The the The... Suffix, itis, just means an inflammation. If you have appendicitis, it means that your appendix is inflamed. A lot of us, our margin time is inflamed. It's red and angry. Because we don't have enough. We've filled our schedules and our days and our weeks with so much activity, we don't have time to see and find opportunities to serve other people. We are so busy moving from point A to point B to point C to point D all the way through the alphabet that we miss opportunities to serve people. So I would encourage you, schedule some downtime in your day. It doesn't have to be an hour and a half to just kind of sit out and look out the window. Oh, pretty sky. But some downtime between appointments, some downtime between your kids' events, will help to reduce the inflammation and the swelling of marginitis. It's big and it matters. Number four, unfamiliarity. One of the main reasons we don't serve is we're not familiar with it. You see, nobody wakes up or is born with a gear to serve. It's not in us. We have to learn it. Parents, we have to teach our kids to serve other people. My kids' middle school had a phenomenal program called WEB, Where Everyone Belongs. And eighth graders, right before school started, incoming sixth graders who were going to be middle school freshmen coming out of elementary school, eighth graders had a day or two where they would adopt an incoming sixth grader and show them around the school so that they got familiar with it. They learned how to open their locker before the first day. They learned where their classrooms were. It was an amazing program. Well, guess what? When Emily and Joseph were in the eighth grade, they did not have the option about whether or not to participate in web. We looked at them and said, honey, son, 
you benefited from that, you will pour back into the next crew coming in behind you. You, you. you have to learn this. And then the fifth reason that serving is tough, entitlement. Entitlement. That, that sense that we are owed something by someone else. A lot of times it's in our relationships. It's like, hey, I said I was sorry first last time. Oh, that, there was a laugh of recognition that rippled through the room right there. I said I was sorry last time and the time before that. I'm not doing it this time. She's coming to me. That's a sense of entitlement. You owe me something. I'm keeping score. Genuine, authentic, Christ-like serving does not keep score. Jesus never one time adopted a spirit of entitlement. He never forfeited his personality or his status as the Son of God and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he never, ever adopted an attitude of entitlement, like you owe me something. He was always worthy, but he was never entitled. And so he says to his followers, I am among you as one who serves. Now, it would be one thing if this was what Jesus taught. But Jesus didn't leave it at the teaching place. He took it to a much deeper and more profound and more lasting place. The place of modeling. The place of showing us how to do it. This same night experience, this same dinner with the disciples is also recorded in the book of John. And in John chapter 13, the Bible says something really powerful. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He knew who he was. He knew where he fit in things. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I got to tell you something. That blows my mind. Now, in this context, the washing of feet was not unfamiliar. Did this happen on a regular basis? Most homes, because these people traveled dusty roads, they weren't paved asphalt. They, they were dusty roads and they wore sandals wherever they went, so their feet were often dirty and it was not uncommon in a home to have a basin of water right by the front door and a towel for the express purpose of guests washing their feet when they came in. In wealthier homes, there would be a servant dedicated exclusively to this task when he would welcome guests into the home. And there was obviously a basin there for this purpose in that upper room where Jesus and his disciples gathered that night. That was the basin that he filled. Isn't it interesting that all 12 disciples walked right past that basin, right past that towel. And it was Jesus who went back to the basin and the towel and began to wash their feet. T. 
teachable moments. Then it goes on to say, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You see, in this moment, Jesus perfectly modeled and communicated true servant leadership. Servant leadership, which, by the way, may be one of the most misunderstood topics in the world today. A lot of people talk about servant leadership. And to be sure, it is real. It is the model, the example that we're called to follow, to walk this way. But I think it's important to understand what servant leadership is and, by the way, what it is not. So on your notes page there, I want you to write down servant leadership is, and then in parentheses put the word not. I'm going to share with you what servant leadership is, but we're going to also make sure we understand what servant leadership is not right after each installment of what it is. So, first of all, servant leadership is proactive. It is absolutely proactive. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus didn't wait for us to say, we need help. Or the disciples to say, our feet are dirty. He took the initiative. It is proactive, but it is not passive. A lot of people think servant leadership is just kind of passive. Let's gather in a room together, hold hands and sing kumbaya, and whatever happens, happens. I'm a servant leader. No, you're not. You're a choir director. (laughs) Servant leadership is not passive. Number two, servant leadership is empowering. It is absolutely delegating. It empowers other people as Jesus empowered his disciples, but it is not popular. Servant leadership never is striving to win a popularity contest. Jesus empowered the disciples, but he also many times was very confrontational as he led them. He looked at Peter one time and said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. But even in that moment, it was an expression of love because Peter was creating a distraction. Servant leadership is absolutely empowering, but it is not popular. Number three, servant leadership is engaging. You have to engage with people when you lead them. And to serve people, you've got to engage with them. You can't do it from the mountaintop. Go do this. I'll check on it later. No, no, no. It's engaging, but it is not consensus building. It's not consensus building. Genuine leadership, don't miss this, dads, moms, managers at work, teachers, genuine leadership, servant leadership, takes people where they need to go, not only where they want to go. True leadership takes people where they need to go and not only where they want to go. I love what Henry Ford said. Henry Ford said, if I had built people what they said they wanted, I'd have built a faster horse. People didn't even know they wanted a car. 
true leadership is not about building unanimity. Yes, we empower people. Yes, we engage with them. But we don't wait for unanimous decisions. We lead and go as Jesus did. Yes, Jesus served, but he also always leads. Always. And then the last thing. True servant leadership is attractive. It is attractive. It is not pitiful. A lot of times people confuse servant leadership with just kind of, you know, kind of mousy over in the corner. Okay, let's maybe, what do y'all think? Should we kind of go do this? Or, you know, do you think we should? Well, you, I don't know. Let's, let's vote. No. No, no, no. But true servant leadership is attractive. Look at Jesus. Think about Jesus for just a second. Whatever you believe, wherever you come from spiritually, you may have issues with Christians, with the church. You may have issues with your dad or with your mom. And I understand those. We all have dealt with those to some degree or another. But just Jesus himself. Can you imagine engaging in relationship with anybody more attractive than Jesus? More attracting? He chooses to serve you. He chose to die on the cross in your place. Paying the penalty for your sin when he had done nothing wrong. Jesus is incredibly attracting. People flocked to be with Jesus. The only people who didn't dig Jesus were religious folks. The only people who got, I don't know about that, I don't know. When he, sometimes they get together and he kind of says some funny stuff. People who knew they were lost, people who knew they needed grace, people who knew they needed forgiveness, they loved being around Jesus. Loved it. But the people who had a vested interest in the status quo, People who had a financial interest in the status quo, they did not dig Jesus. But when you see his brand of servant leadership lived out and played out, man, there's something incredibly attractive about it. Incredibly, incredibly attractive. Now, Jesus goes on and he says something really extreme. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Say blessed. Now, when you hear the word bless, when I hear the word bless, I think most of us, our, our first knee-jerk reaction, our first thought is of kind of a, a prayerful commendation over somebody. Bless you. Bless you. You are blessed. God has blessed you. And that's certainly a part of it. But when Jesus uses the word blessed, there's something much more profound going on there. The word blessed in the original language carries with it a meaning 
of complete fulfillment. So not only will you be blessed and spoken over, but you will be completely fulfilled and joyful and peaceful because you will be living out the reasons for which you were created. So if you see what Jesus has called you to do and then you do it, he says, you will be fulfilled. You will be fulfilled. You will be peaceful. So, how do we do it? I mean, let's get real, down and dirty, day in and day out. And I want to do something a little bit. We haven't done this in a while, but I want you on your notes page there, right down the left-hand side of the page or somewhere where you can, just down the thing, walk. W-A-L-K. We've talked about sharing Christ with other people, inviting people to church. As you're writing walk down the side of the page, don't ever forget this. 82% of people who are not connected to God will accept an invitation to church from a friend of theirs. 82%. 82%. And at Easter, that number even goes up. 82%. So you want to share Christ with somebody and you're kind of nervous about having a conversation? I get that. Invite them to church, especially next week, I promise you. They will encounter Christ personally. To walk this way is to be evangelistic. To walk this way is to be compassionate. To walk this way is to be obedient. To serve, we've got to walk. So we're going to make this a little bit interactive, kind of as we spur the horse to the barn here today. So I don't want you, everybody, kind of sit up, take a, take a deep breath. <sighs> got to shake it out a little bit. That's fine. But give me a W. W. Wear the towel of a servant. Wear the towel of a servant. Everywhere you go this week, every relationship that you engage in, everything that you do at work, everything you do at school, wear the towel of a servant. Look for those opportunities. Here's the thing. It's easier to serve the further you get away from home. Real ministry starts at home. You wear the towel of a servant as a husband. You you look at your wife and you pray, God, how can I serve her? How can I walk this way by serving her this week? I'm going to change that diaper. Because I know it's just a number one. Here's something I've learned after 22 plus years of marriage and almost 20 years of parenting. When I serve, everything works better. Everything. Our family works better. My job works better. My life works better. When I serve, everything works better. Wear the towel of a servant. E, give me an, I'm sorry, A, I started, where? We're going to edit this out. All right, here we go with the second one. A, give me an A. A. Accept the leading role of a servant. Accept the leading role of a servant. You know how many people will say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not really, I'm not a leader. I'm not an out front guy or girl. And that's totally acceptable. That's understandable. God doesn't make everybody 
to be, you know, the president of the United States or Vince Lombardi or this, that, or the other. And yet, Jesus says, everyone, say everyone. everyone. Tell your neighbor right now, that means you. Everyone who follows Christ is called to be salt and light. Everyone is called to be an influencer in this world, in their home, in their community, in their church. And the best way to influence people is to serve them, to help them. So you accept the leadership role of a servant. L, give me an L. L. Lead somewhere by serving faithfully over time. Lead somewhere by serving faithfully over time. I think about middle school and high school students in our church. Middle school and high school students who serve in the ministries younger than them. So I'm talking about middle school kids, 6th, 7th, 8th grade who serve in the children's ministry week after week after week after week. High school students who serve on our tech team, who serve in the middle school ministry, in the children's ministry, they are serving faithfully over time. It's amazing to watch what happens. Now, a lot of you are going to serve next weekend. Hundreds of you have already signed up to serve in our services on Sunday morning, and you're going to come on Saturday night to make room for our guests. But that's going to be just the tip of the iceberg for you. You're going to go into that weekend, and God's going to do something in that moment so profound in you. And you're going to say, I want some more of that. I want to do this consistently over time. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow. And you're going to remember this message and you're going to put on that towel in your mind and in your heart. And you're going to serve in your office and you're going to be blown away by how fast tomorrow goes. And you're going to choose to do the same thing on Tuesday and then again on Wednesday. And you're going to lead somewhere by serving faithfully over time. And when you do that, God changes you. That's transformation. That's when you begin to resemble the character and the nature of Christ. You can't follow Christ and not serve. You can't. If I'm a follower of Christ, then by definition I will serve. And by definition I will do it faithfully over time somewhere. Starting at home. Now, That's difficult, but it's easy compared to K. So, final installment here, be strong. Give me a K. K. Kill the flesh. Now, the Bible talks repeatedly about this war between good and evil. And when Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter morning, the war was won. But there are these intermittent battles and skirmishes that continue to rage on within our lives, aren't there? We we still, the war has been won. We, We know who wins in the end. But in the meantime, 
there are these battles that exist within us. And the Bible says it's a battle between our spirit and the spirit of God in us and our flesh, our natural desires, wants, and needs. And and it's that battle that rages when, when I don't feel like serving. When I get home from work and I'm like, you know what, I'm tired. I ain't serving nobody. That's the flesh. The spirit, on the other hand, says, okay, I know you're tired. How many can you do when you're tired? Allow the spirit of God to infill you and then spill out to the people around you. And when I have that moment with God and I pray, God, you do this in spite of me. God, your spirit working through me, that's killing the flesh. That's putting it aside. That's exactly what the Bible says Jesus did spiritually on the cross. On the cross, his flesh died. His body died. But spiritually, he was killing the flesh. He was killing sin and that which lies within every single one of us. This is how the Bible describes it. This is pretty straightforward. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. The Bible says, So, put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Lurking. That's a great word, isn't it? Lurking. It's lurking. It's always there. Makes me think of Lurch from the Adams family. Remember? Lurch was just always there. He was lurching. You rang. Our sinful earthly desires are always lurking. They're always there. And when we feel that battle waged within us, the spirit and the flesh, at that moment our prayer is, God, crucify the flesh within me. Kill the flesh. And watch the spirit of God empower us, infill us, and then spill into the lives of the people around us. Man, what would our homes look like if dads killed the flesh? What would our homes look like if kids killed the flesh and chose to trust and honor their parents? Go, you know what? You're old. I don't get it. But I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to tell you I'm doing one thing, but do another. I'm not going to, you know what, dad? I'm not going to yell at you anymore because I, I'm going to, I'm going to kill the flesh. Or if wives would kill the flesh toward their husbands, what would single adults, students' lives look like if they killed the flesh And when they felt the need to give in to temptation or to lower the bar of who they're going to date and potentially marry, they would say, you know what? I'm going to kill the flesh and allow the Spirit of God to infill me and then spill out of me into the lives of the people around me. What would our communities look like if this church killed the flesh and served faithfully over time? within and outside the walls of this church. 
that's where it starts to get fun. That's where we see real life change happen. But it all starts on the cross. On the cross of Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want to ask you if you will remain seated because this is holy ground. And I want to ask you if you would please no one moving or stirring or distracting from what God is doing right now. It's too important. Some of you are here today and you have never chosen to follow Christ, to walk his way. And right now, as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do just that. To purposefully and deliberately step over that line of faith into a relationship with him. If God's leading you to do that today, then I invite you just to pray silently right where you're sitting a prayer of commitment. Just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life. I submit to you and I ask Jesus that you would kill that flesh within me, that natural desire, that natural bent away from you. Jesus, I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again for me. And so right now, I believe in you. I choose to follow you from this moment forward, once and for all. I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment. But if you just prayed that prayer for the first time in your life and you meant it with everything that you've got, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that was your prayer, I want to ask you if you would just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. And as you hold your hand up, I want to tell you why I ask you to do that. It's for you. For you to mark this moment. For you to know that it's real, that God just did that in your life and you responded to his initiative. Because I will promise you this, there will come another moment where you will wonder, was that real? Did did that really happen in You need to know it's real. It is forever. You never have to pray that prayer again. You get to just begin growing in this relationship with Jesus. For us as a church, we have no greater privilege or honor than to see God do that in your life. To partner with Him as He did that 
And so we celebrate that with you. We want to be a family of faith for you and to you. So as you put your hands down, as a church family, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.